Take your Bibles, please, in whatever form it is, and go to Matthew chapter 4. We're finishing out Matthew chapter 4, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 25, and uh, we'll, we'll read it as we go through it, but let me just remind you of where we've been so far. Maybe the, the heading in your uh, copy of God's Word says something like, mine does, Jesus begins his public ministry. That's the title of the message, and that's indeed what these verses describe. And uh, it's good for us just to recognize that Jesus did not begin his public ministry in the way that most people would have expected. First of all, when he came into the world, when he was born, he was born of a virgin, born very discreetly in a, in a manger. And then uh, his life um, was sought after in terms of uh, Herod wanting to kill him. And uh, he and his parents ended up having to flee for their lives into Egypt. They go into uh, Nazareth. And he lives there in, in obscurity for about 30 years. He was uh, hiding in plain sight, it turns out. And then John the Baptist comes on to the scene. Uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus, whom John announces in John chapter 1 and verse 29, uh, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus comes on to the scene publicly, and surprisingly, he's baptized. He subjects himself to John's baptism of repentance and thereby uh, identifies himself with the likes of us people who really do need to repent. Uh, and, and then he's tempted by the devil. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, last time we were in Matthew. And uh, this temptation took place after Jesus had fasted. He had gone without food for 40 days and 40 nights. So he was very, very weak. And nevertheless, in that weakened state, he overcame the temptations of the evil one, and angels came and were ministering to him, and that's the context for Jesus beginning his public ministry. Again, hiding in plain sight, very weak after this period of testing and temptation, and now, Matthew says in verse 12, th this all begins. So that's where we pick things up then in verse 12. And as Matthew describes Jesus beginning his public ministry, the first thing he tells us about here is the, the setting, verses 12 through 16. So notice verse 12, the beginning of the verse. Now when... He, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested. So that John is John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist was arrested uh, not by Herod the Great, who tried to have Jesus murdered when he had all uh, infant males up to two years of age put to death, murdered, around the time of Jesus' birth. That was Herod the Great. This is um, one of his sons. This is Herod Antipas. He, he is the one who had John the Baptist arrested. And you, we're in Matthew, so you might as well flip forward to Matthew chapter 14. We'll get there eventually. But in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, Matthew is going to reflect on the details of John's arrest. So we read there in Matthew 14, verses 3 and 4, <clears throat> For Herod 
had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so John the Baptist was confronting Herodias and Herod about their adulterous relationship. And because of that, he ends up in prison. And then eventually, he's going to end up beheaded. Um, but that's what Matthew's referring to here in verse 12. So John, at this point, has been arrested. And so Jesus withdrew Matthew says, into Galilee. So let's get the lay of the land once again. Down here is the region where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and then Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness of Judea, so that's probably in the same region. And to get there, Jesus uh, came down from Nazareth of Galilee, so he comes down to be baptized and tempted. And then our English translations say he withdrew back to Galilee, back uh, in the region of, of Nazareth. And I want to point out that uh, that could lead us to a wrong assumption. So Jesus, we, we could reach the conclusion that Jesus withdrew out of fear of what happened to John the Baptist, but that's not what the word means. Um, according to the Lu Nida Greek English lexicon of the New Testament, this word that's translated withdrew in the ESV means to move back to a point or area from which one has previously previously departed, but with more explicit emphasis upon the return. So really this could have been translated that Jesus returned into Galilee, because that's where he had come from. And um, this was not a retreat, and it was not an escape from danger, because Herod Antipas uh, ruled the region of Galilee. And in fact, the capital of his uh, region of rule was Tiberias, which is about eight and a half miles down the coast of the Sea of Galilee, from uh, Capernaum, which is where Jesus went. So he didn't go away from danger. He actually went into the, into the teeth of danger. In fact, Michael Wilkins in his commentary on Matthew makes this point that Jesus undertakes his Galilean ministry in the teeth of a gathering storm. Uh, this gathering storm composed of the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders. John the Baptist had already upset them. Remember, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, and also the um, secular political leadership as well. Herod Antipas and his wife had already been offended by D John the Baptist, and they're going to hear more of the same from Jesus, so right into the teeth of a gathering storm, Jesus goes into to begin his public ministry. By the way, here's a close-up. So this is to the North Sea of Galilee, Tiberias, uh, the, the seat of government of Herod Antipas, and then here's Capernaum, which Matthew is going to mention next. So why did Jesus go there then? Verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, his boy, his childhood home here, he went and lived at Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, this being from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And the reason why this is known as Galilee of the Gentiles is because it was a major uh, commercial passageway into the world. 
the world of the Gentiles, and there, there were a lot of Gentiles that came and went through this region. So that was an appropriate title for Galilee because of its proximity here to the Sea of Galilee. And then verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And that reflects Isaiah chapter 9. It also reflects what Kevin read from uh, Isaiah chapter 42 about uh, the light from God which has come into the world. And uh, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus said about himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of the, uh, the light of life. And indeed, the people were in darkness. They were under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. Uh, they were in a time of silence from God some 400 years before the last uh, prophet had spoken. It seemed as if uh, there was just a faint glimmer of hope from God in terms of his promises of a deliverer, a Messiah, a Savior. And it was into that darkness that Jesus, the light of the world, came. And he began to reveal his light through his public ministry. So that's the setting. Next, Matthew tells us about the message, the, the message that characterized Jesus' public ministry. What was he all about? What was the general content of what he had to say? And it's very simple. In fact, it's very familiar. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, that's the um, Greek word metanoeo, repentance in the noun form is metanoia, and like we saw in Matthew chapter 3, um, repentance literally is a change of mind, but as John the Baptist pointed out, it's not um, a bare intellectual thing but it's a change of mind that bears fruit in a person's life. It's a change of mind that can be seen in a person's life. That's repentance. That's what John the Baptist preached. That's what the prophets before him preached as well. And then that's what Jesus preached. And uh, the reason why Repentance is an appropriate theme for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is because God is holy and righteous. And he's the king of his own kingdom. And the, the people that he's preaching to, like us, we are all by nature unholy and unrighteous. In fact, the Bible describes us as rebels. We're, we're, we're not subject to the law of God. We don't want to be. We're alienated from God. We're not willing subjects of his. And so the thing that we need most fundamentally is repentance. There needs to be this fundamental transformation that begins in the core of our being. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need repentance so that we can become citizens in God's kingdom. And after all, this is why Jesus came 
Remember the message from the angel. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And if you, if you think of yourself, and I know this is sometimes hard to do, but if, if you can think of yourself as a rebel, and here's God, king of his kingdom, how are you as a rebel, an insurrectionist, if you will, how are you going to be welcomed by the king into his kingdom? Well, you have two fundamental problems. You're, you're a treasonist, so you have crimes that have to be atoned for. And in, in every country, treasonists are punished by death. But that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus tasted death for us so that God can righteously and justly welcome us into his kingdom. That's our first major problem. But the second major problem is that we really are rebels at heart. So not only does God take care of our record of treason, but he also changes our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that this repentance, which Jesus commands... God grants as a gift. And so Jesus himself changes us from the inside out so that we are actually willing subjects in God's kingdom. So he changes our record. He takes care of our bad record and he also takes care of our uh, rebellious heart so that God's kingdom is not just filled with rebels who have had their records cleared only to form these sleeper cells to rise up in rebellion again. No, God's kingdom is populated by people whose records have been washed clean and whose hearts have been made new. And all of that is bound up in that little word, repent. And that's why it's so appropriate. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And like we saw in Matthew chapter 3, in connection with uh, John the Baptist's ministry, uh, at hand means that the kingdom of God has arrived, it is near, it is knocking on the door, it's not off in the distance, it is here. And the kingdom of God is uh, the rule of God in the hearts and lives of believers, both Jews and Gentiles. And this kingdom was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And it's, it's arrived, but not in its final consummate form. The kingdom of God is not a one or a zero. So before Jesus the kingdom of God was anticipated. Jesus comes and then wham, it's all here 100%. Re remember the analogy that we noticed a few weeks ago? It's sort of like somebody who goes on this long journey to hike up Mount Whitney. And when they finally arrive from wherever they began their journey from at the uh, Whitney portals, uh, Mount Whitney is at hand, the, the journey is at hand, but there is quite a journey that still lies ahead. And when they finally get there and they go on their masochistic uh, hike up to the top of Mount Whitney, which some of you have made and I admire you for that, you know, then, then finally Mount Whitney, you know, that whole experience has come in its consummation. Well, in a similar way, when, when Jesus came into the world, the kingdom had been inaugurated, but the journey was only going to begin. And so all of us who are believers, who are citizens in God's kingdom, we, we're um, <clears throat> in the middle of that journey, that track, we're, we're caught in the in-between 
between the, the already and the not yet. When the kingdom of God is here 100%, it's fulfilled, it's consummated, that's basically, that takes place at, um, at the resurrection. When uh, we're all raised again, we get glorified bodies like Jesus' glorified body. Um, the, the earth along with the rest of creation is renewed. And then we enter into the, the new heaven and the new earth, which is called the kingdom. But in the meantime, that is not yet, but the kingdom of God is still here. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Matthew describes Jesus calling his first disciples in verses 18 through 22. So while walking by the Sea of Galilee, this is a picture from the Sea of Galilee, not from me, I'd, I'd love to go there. If you want to give me a really cool birthday present some year, <laughs> Jesus saw two brothers Simon who is called Peter and this would become the apostle Peter uh, the rock the leader of the um, apostles and the author of first and second Peter and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's uh, quite a word picture that Jesus intentionally uses. And so it's a great analogy. It helps us to understand uh, what disciples are supposed to be about during our journey in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're all, it turns out, supposed to have some role in being fishers of men. And so there's a net that's cast out. And the, the net, as the rest of the scriptures will, will tell us eventually, represents the, the gospel and um, the Holy Spirit using the gospel as the sword of the Spirit, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so we, we spread out that net and then we pull it in and there are fish that will be contained. And the promise of God is that previously, before the inauguration of the kingdom of God, <clears throat> there wasn't a whole lot of net throwing because the kingdom of God was restricted to the nation of Israel, and not even all of Israel was saved. And, and now, wonder of wonders, in a dramatic change of God's redemptive uh, outworking of his plan, now there's going to be fish caught in this gospel net from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue, and we don't have to worry about failure. It doesn't mean every single person that we share the gospel with is going to be saved, but Jesus' gospel enterprise is going to be massively successful. We don't have to worry that at the, at the consummation of all things, when Jesus comes again, there's going to be this, this empty net with a couple of fish. It's going to be massively populated and uh, it helps us to understand what Jesus calls us to do. So he uh, tells Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So now Jesus has his first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, 
John. And what did they do for a living? They were all fishermen. They weren't scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the ruling class. They weren't rich. They were very ordinary men. And you know what? God still works this way. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 30. For consider your calling, brothers, and I say that to you. Consider your calling, brethren, brothers and sisters, and the word is inclusive in that way. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And why does God operate in this way? And by the way, does that mean that no rich person can ever be saved? What Jesus did say it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But he also went on to say that nothing is impossible with God. And so are rich people saved? Yes. But what has to happen first? Well, part of their fundamental transformation, part of their repentance is they become poor in spirit. Often rich people are proud and arrogant and um, independent and, and all of the rest. They put their trust in their riches. But when a rich person repents, they take on a childlike spirit. They become poor in spirit and they relinquish their trust in riches and they put their trust in God. But again, why does God operate this way? Why, does, why is God pleased to populate his kingdom with ordinary people like us, ordinary people like Peter, Andrew, James, and John? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Remember what we saw from Kevin's reading in Isaiah chapter 42, God will not share his glory with another. Everyone whom God calls knows instinctively by the instinct of the Holy Spirit that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, not because of us, but because of God's grace alone. There is no room for boasting in the presence of God. And then Paul goes on in verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is why God operates in his kingdom the way that he does, so that the glory belongs to him and to him alone. But back to Matthew chapter 4, there is one other lesson here from the calling of these first disciples Notice Jesus' call to them. Follow me. Follow me. That's still Jesus' call to disciples today. Follow me. Becoming a Christian is not a momentary decision. 
It's, it's not just an emotional response to a, uh, a gospel appeal. And we should appeal to Christ, um, unbelievers. We should uh, preach the gospel to every creature and do so persuasively so that people would be persuaded to come to the Lord. But at the end of the day, um, the call to come to Jesus is a call to follow him. So what does that mean, follow me? Well, all you have to do is look at the rest of this three years that Jesus spent with his disciples. What did that turn out to mean? Follow me? Learn from me. That's what a disciple is, a learner. Learn from me, Jesus says. Follow my example. And then here's another thing that he says that's synonymous. Keep my commandments. You can't possibly follow Jesus and ignore his commandments or, or live in opposition to his commandments habitually, but all of that is bound up in that command, follow me. So I think that's really simple. And I think that modern evangelicalism sometimes confuses the simplicity of what it means to be a Christian. And, and I just want you to know that this is the same message that we preach because this is what we're commanded to preach. And our invitation to everyone here is just this. Follow Jesus. He's not going to turn you away because he laid down his life for sinners like you. There's no sin that's so great that it will disqualify you from being saved by Jesus. Saul of Tarsus, who tried to destroy the church, he called himself the chief of sinners, the foremost sinner. He was saved. And then Jesus put him to work in his kingdom. You're not worse than Saul of Tarsus. You're not worse than all kinds of people whom Jesus has saved from all kinds of sins. So he's not going to turn you away, but he does call you to follow him. He does call you to repent. Turn from your sins Put your trust in him, learn from him, follow his example, keep his commandments. And then, that's a major role of the church. That, that's why the church exists. The purpose of the church is to be an institution, an organization of disciples to help Christ's disciples observe all that Christ has commanded. That's what we're supposed to do. And so when we get together, we should open up God's word. We should get plugged into one another's lives. We should bear one another's burdens. We should confess our sins to one another, get help. We're all in this together. There's, there's, there's no one who's like on a different echelon than the rest of us were all a bunch of hell-deserving sinners who have been saved by God's grace alone and who have been transformed by the omnipotent Holy Spirit into disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need each other. I need you. We all need one another. And that's why the church is not just a lecture hall. I know our, our, this kind of format, this, this uh, sermon, sermonic format, it's, it is luxury, it's, it's a monologue, and there's biblical um, reasoning for that, but this isn't supposed to be it. There is supposed to be dialogue. There is supposed to be face-to-face -face knowing 
one another, discipling one another. This is what Christ calls us to. And what's the goal, once again, following him? But by the way, notice their response. Jesus says, follow me. Verse 20, immediately Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. In verse 22, immediately James and John left the boat and their follow and their father, excuse me, and followed him. And let me just say, if you're not a Christian this morning and you've already heard the gospel and you've already heard what Jesus requires, you've heard his invitation, follow me, he says. I'm saying to you, do it immediately. Don't wait until this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or when you enter your son, your retirement years or whatever. Don't wait because who knows what a day may bring. Who knows if uh, the Lord is going to come or call. Who knows how hard your heart is going to get as you continue to resist the Holy Spirit in terms of this outward call of the gospel. Today, as long as it's called today, immediately, don't wait. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will by no means turn you away. Follow me, Jesus says. So his first disciples, and then in Matthew's account, the great crowds in verses 23 through 25. Man, as I think of my own conversion, um, I was such a fool, and I was so stubborn, and God was so kind. There, There were so many times until I was saved that the, the Lord could have killed me. He could have just given me up um, to the foolish, to the logical, natural consequences of my own foolishness. And I'm so glad that he didn't do that and he did save me. But the, the thing is, I wasn't guaranteed that. And if you're not saved, you're not guaranteed that. Who knows? I'm, I'm so glad that eventually... God did overcome my stubborn rebellion and save me. And my appeal to you if you're unsaved is just don't wait. Come to Jesus immediately and be saved. Follow him. All right. Verses 23 through 25, the great crowds. And he went throughout all the throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And by the way, um, a snippet of that is captured by Luke. In Luke chapter 4, remember, he goes into the synagogue in Capernaum and he stands up and he reads from Isaiah uh, about the Messiah. And Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. So he's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. (coughs) Pardon me. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. I've, I've heard it said that during this Galilean ministry, you, you know how our, our country, uh, the CDC and whoever, they, they track diseases and we can go back and uh, see trends. Well, if there was a, a CDC in those days, hopefully it wouldn't be a corrupt CDC, but if there was a CDC in the land of Palestine that was tracking these health trends, they would notice Wow, there's usually all, there's um, leprosy and these different kinds of diseases and um, things that turn out are actually demon possessions. 
And then at this particular point in time, they go, boom. The, the trend line of diseases, sickness, demon possession in uh, the region around Galilee, it just tanked. Because Jesus was at work. And notice how successful this healing uh, ministry was. He was healing every disease, everything. Not just psychosomatic diseases, but everything. Supernaturally, undoubtedly, and every affliction among the people. A um, couple of things about healing. Number one, uh, let us never forget, let us never take for granted, let us never minimize that this same Jesus is alive today. He's on his throne. And Jesus still heals. But number two, there was a purpose for this healing ministry from Jesus. He's, he's going around inaugurating the kingdom of God and validating his own credentials as the promised Messiah. There is no one like Jesus, and there is still no one like Jesus. And uh, number three, this healing ministry of Jesus is going to be consummated at the resurrection with uh, every other element of the kingdom of God. Think about that. Every single person who was healed by Jesus during his Galilean ministry, in fact, during his whole public ministry on earth, every single one of them died. Right? Healing is not everything. Healing, physical healing is not the ultimate thing. It's only temporary. Eventually, we're all still going to die unless Jesus comes before then. Also, what happens if somebody gets, heal gets healed physically and they're still in their sins? then that physical healing, even though it was a blessing for sure, but they're still lost and they still, still enter into a lost eternity. But what happened here in Jesus' Galilean ministry was a microcosm of Christ's work of redemption which will find its ultimate fulfillment at the resurrection. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want, I want you to see this point. So Jesus went around doing two things, we're told. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he was healing and relieving people of every affliction. He did, he did both. He didn't just preach and say to people who were suffering, be warm and filled. But he also didn't just go around healing without preaching. Because as I've been explaining, what good does that do ultimately? There's no eternal good from just physical healing. Jesus did both. He heals. He redeems the whole man, both body and soul. And so <clears throat> what we see in Matthew chapter 4 is a microcosm of Christ's work of redemption. So for example, Matthew chapter 15, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Remember, Jesus was going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Um, there's an ongoing element to our salvation. We have been saved 
that we are also being saved and we will ultimately be saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. If somebody says that they're a believer and then they fall away, then according to Paul, they believed in vain. They never actually had saving faith. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. This is the message of the kingdom that we're supposed to proclaim. And the moment that we believe that gospel, we are saved. There's a bunch of things that happen concurrently. There's, there's a package that God delivers to us. Uh, and this package of salvation consists of our justification. He declares us righteous because of Jesus. There, the process of sanctification begins. We're adopted into his family. We become his, his children, his sons and his daughters. We become heirs together with Christ and all of the rest. That begins, that is all ours, this package, at the moment we believe in the gospel sincerely. But then what is it all tending towards? As 1 Corinthians 15 <clears throat> continues, in verses 35 and following, Paul is going to describe the resurrection and the nature of our resurrection bodies. And then in verse 50, he says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said? Repent for the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous with the kingdom of God, is at hand. Here is the ultimate consummation of the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet when Jesus comes again. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That is the ultimate healing. No more death. No more sickness. No more disease. No more suffering. In the meantime, when God does heal, it's a temporary healing. It's a, um, almost like a lower level of healing. But this is a healing that is ultimate and that will be eternal. And Christ's healing and preaching ministry is a microcosm of all of that. <coughs> Pardon me. And so we need to be about what Jesus was all about. And just like Jesus cared for the whole man, body and soul, so should we. And frankly, I think Garen and Susan Harris's ministry in Togo, Africa, is a great example of that. So there they are, they're in Togo, and they're not just um, a Christian version of a United Nations relief organization. They're not just there um, drilling wells and, and, you know, founding this hospital, providing uh, care for the outward man. No, they're, they're there preaching the gospel, making disciples, establishing churches, establishing a uh, Christian leader training center, and by the same token, they're, they're not just there preaching the gospel and ignoring the obvious needs of the people to whom they're sent to minister. 
And it's just common sense, really. If, if you're someone that a missionary is trying to reach and they're telling you this, this message of salvation and you're desperately poor, you don't have clean water, you're, you're, you're suffering physically, it's hard for you to trust this message along with the messenger if there's no concern for your outward needs. And that's why Christians need to be involved in both. Preach the gospel, be involved in healing. Pray for healing, um, be involved in uh, healing in terms of medical care and uh, food and clean water and all of the rest. And as we do that, we're showing the concern of Jesus and we're giving people a taste of the good things to come when Jesus will come at the last trumpet on the day of the Lord and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. This is Jesus, a universal savior. He saves both body and soul, those who put their trust in him. And he even saves creation itself. Paul explains in Romans chapter 8. There's only one kind of person that Jesus does not save. And it has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with country of origin. It has everything to do with your trust. Jesus only saves those who come to him in faith, those who obey his call to repent and to follow him. If you don't repent and follow him, you're not saved now, and you will not be saved until you repent. It's as simple as that. But praise God that we have such a gracious and merciful Savior that he, makes the, he gives this, this invitation to us now and the promise that everyone who does come to him in this way will be saved.